This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Well, thank you so much for, um, for being here. Let's just still our hearts for a moment and pray. Lord, we just come to you and ask that your spirit would do a work in our midst. Um, God, guide my lips, my tongue. Let me say exactly what I should say, no more, no less. And let the Spirit of God just make the application wherever we need to maybe make some changes. I pray this in your name. Amen. We're all aware of the tragic death of 46-year-old George Floyd. I won't go into the details because you already know them, but just a quick summary of what took place. George Floyd, after trying to pay for something with a counterfeit bill, was handcuffed, put face down where a police officer placed his knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes while three other officers looked on and assisted. The cell phone, cell phone video from bystanders initially heard him say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Gradually, he became silent as he went unconscious. Soon his heart stopped beating with apparently no efforts to revive him until medical personnel arrived. And even though the full investigation is incomplete, yet two different medical examiners have ruled his death a homicide, citing cardiac arrest, mechanical asphyxia during neck compressions, as well as mentioning factors discovered in the autopsy, such as fentanyl intoxication and recent methamphetamine use. All four officers responding to George Floyd were fired the day after his death. And even though George Floyd, because of arrests, previous arrests, jail stints was certainly not necessarily an exemplary representation of the black community, yet it appears his death was completely avoidable, inexcusable, and tragic. My heart goes out to his family. And across the nation, there are marches, protests, riots, bringing attention to his needless death. But George Floyd is not my focus for today. Because there's a bigger picture I want to paint. As tragic as his death was, it really doesn't give us the real problem. In a way, it just masks the real problem. Unnecessary brutality, ugly racism is not the real problem. It's merely a symptom of the real problem. And so today, with God's help and, and with much fear, realizing that a topic as incendiary as this one is will potentially have some backlash. But I feel compelled, and I know that's a strong word, and I don't use this very often, and, and, and rarely do I have the emotion and the conviction that I do today, but I feel compelled to speak on the real problem. Now, let me give you the progression of what led me to stick my neck out on a subject like this. Last Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd worked on a sermon. It was one of those quote-unquote safe sermons, if there ever is a sermon that's safe. But I felt pretty good about it. I needed to fine-tune it, but it was pretty close to being ready. But Wednesday evening, since we didn't have life groups, I went to Nevada 
for the first time in, in three months, the racquetball court at the YMCA was open, and so I, I played nearly two hours of intense racquetball with three of my Nevada buddies. We finished around 8.45 p.m. I got in my car, began to head home. Before I got out of Nevada, I don't know when I have had such a strong impression that, that has come over me. It was pretty much out of the clear blue, and, but I felt, again, here's this word, compelled to address this matter that has captured the emotion of our country, which for that happening on a Wednesday night isn't a comforting feeling that didn't leave me much time to prepare. I'm, I'm in the slow class. I need a lot of time, and especially when I knew I would be starting with only a blank sheet of paper. But I got home, and I said to Faith, Faith, you need to really pray for me. This is what I'm feeling right now, and I, I think she thought I was an idiot for speaking on something so risky, but here we are. Yes, apprehensive, but having that compelling sense that I'm doing what needs to be done. So we reference George Floyd, this 46-year-old black man from Minneapolis that from all appearances had his life brutally and unnecessarily taken from him. We move from Minneapolis, Minnesota to our own state of Missouri, the city of St. Louis. We go from George Floyd to a man by the name of David Dorn, another black man. He was 77 years old, a retired St. Louis Metropolitan Police Captain of 38 years on the force. One week after George Floyd's death, as the marches and the riots and protests spread into our own state, David Dorn, an exemplary pol retired police officer, went to help protect a friend's pawn shop from the rioting, from the looting. At around 2.30 in the morning, Officer David Dorn was shot and killed and his death was streamed on Facebook Live while the people looked on and laughed. During the course of the rioting, four other officers were shot, but will survive. I personally hope that there will be the same amount of sympathy and that there will be marches showing support for this exemplary American citizen. But my topic is not David Dorn, because there's a bigger picture. We now move to Indianapolis, where, where this past Thursday, a police officer, Breanne Leith, a 24-year-old black woman, a mom of one of the cutest little boys you will ever see, was brutally shot while responding to a domestic call, the suspect being a 27-year-old black male that has been apprehended. And just as George Floyd's and, and David Dorn's deaths were tragic and unnecessary, so was also Breanne Leith's death tragic and unnecessary. But again, Brianne Leith is not my topic today because there's a bigger picture. We move from the needless deaths of George Floyd, David Dorn, Brianne Leith to a larger category of deaths. These are the deaths of children. And as I begin to research this information, my, my heart broke because according to a .gov website of the Administration for Children and Families, in 2017, 1,720 children. In fact, before I continue, look around and find a child. We've got a few back there, there, a few over there. 1,720 of these innocent children in our country alone were killed due to parental abuse and neglect with around half of them having been in child protective services, yet they weren't protected. 
1,720 of them, which translates into nearly five innocent, precious children that will die to abuse each day, sometimes by shaking, sometimes by beating, sometimes by suffocating, a few by drowning, sometimes just long-term neglect. These deaths are tragic, inexcusable. Yet there will probably be no marches on behalf of these children who had no chance to live out their lives. But these children are not my focus today because there is yet a bigger picture. We move from children back to adults, and and we look at the matter of spousal abuse. It's sad that in our country, nearly three women are murdered every day by their spouse or their significant other or their lover. Many of them promise to love and to cherish for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, yet in acts of brutal abuse, Nearly 1,000 women per year in America cruelly lose their lives at the hands of their lovers. And I realize no cell phone captures the violence to be able to get it in the hands of the media, but where's the outcry? But again, the tragic deaths of 1,000 abused women per year in our country, it's not my focus. There's still a bigger picture. Let's talk about the matter of homicide in these United States. According to the CDC.gov website, there are 19,500 murders in every year in our country. These are black, these are white, these are brown, these are yellow. People of all races, people like you, people like me, average citizens, people that have, have family, have friends, people that have kids and grandkids. Nearly 20,000 of them have their lives brutally taken from them every year. But again, as horrible as this is, these victims are not my focus. There's a bigger picture. We move to the matter of hunger. According to the United Nations and the UNICEF, in, in, in the 1,440 minutes that are in each day, 15 people worldwide will die of starvation. Every, every 1,440 minutes, 15 People die each minute. This comes up to 21,000 daily. You can do the math. Figure out how many that is per year. My, my mind can't comprehend those numbers. And the marches to bring attention to their situation? Nothing but silence. This is tragic. But again, this is not my focus today. There's a bigger picture. You say, enough is enough, Pastor. I wish I wouldn't have come to church today. Your, your message is depressing, discouraging. You've made your point. Well, not yet. Let's move to the matter of religious persecution. Sometimes we think that religious persecution was only back in the days of the arena. You know, the lions, the gladiators, all that part of history. But, but, but today, and, and, and figures vary because people that die for their faith are many times in countries where this is hidden. They don't report this. But there's more religious persecution today than there was back in the gladiator period of history. And there are differing numbers on this, uh, but, but probably a, a fairly conservative number established for Christians who die for their faith is around 90,000 every year. That, that's 30% more than the entire population of Springfield. Think of it. 90,000 people dying every year, not because they committed a crime, not because they did anything wrong. They lost their lives simply because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. 
The majority of these martyrs were in Africa and the Middle East. Where's the outcry? Does that not bother us? 90,000 people like us, Christians, killed, some beheaded, some shot, some tortured to death, simply because they chose Jesus. Yet these brave martyrs are not my focus today because there's still one more category that will help complete our bigger picture. I move to the youngest of the young, the unborn. And I know some of you here, maybe those watching online, you're rolling your eyes saying, no, Pastor, abortion is a political matter. You've crossed the line here. You're not supposed to deal with politics in the church. If you feel abortion is a political matter, I'm not going to say anything mean or disrespectful to you. But I do want to say this. I have a feeling that those innocent babies in the womb would not agree that this is a political matter. I don't think that as their lives are being taken in a brutal and painful way that, that these babies would say, oh, no big deal, you know, taking my life is a political matter. I don't think they would say that. But again, even though these 600,000 deaths per year are tragic, that's not my focus. But it does help, to com- it does help complete the picture that I wanted to paint for you today. Because all of these ways of dying, as tragic and as unnecessary as they are, they're not the real problem. They're symptoms of the problem. The brutality towards George Floyd is not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. The unnecessary and tragic murder of decorated officers David Dorn, Breanne Lee, are not the problem just symptoms of the problem. The the child abuse, the spousal abuse, the murders, the religious persecution, starvation, abortion, those are not the problems. They're merely symptoms of the problem. The problem goes way back, way before the United States was even formed, way before Christopher Columbus discovered America. And and actually, you, you know that Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. He just introduced America to Western Europe. But, but the problem began way before Columbus's boats. Do you remember the names? The Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria? Ever came onto the shores of what we now call America. The problem began before that. The, the problem goes way back, way back to the first human beings. The problem began when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And, and the real word for their disobedience is a three-letter word, the word sin. And their sin is, is what led to all of the violence and the brutality and, and the pain in our world. Because where there is sin, there will be racism. Where there is sin, there will be abuse. Where there is sin, there will be murder. Where there is sin, there will be brutality. Where there is sin, there will be suffering. Now, how did we get here as a country? I mean, this country that has in their pledge, under God, this country, this country that has on their currency, in God we trust. This country that has built into its foundation these words from the Declaration of Independence that you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, 
all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. How did America get to where we are? Well, to lead us into this segment of our discussion, I want to mention two terms that you've heard before, but they will help us see the bigger picture. The first term is what I call relative truth, and and relative truth simply means truth that is adjustable with the times. It's kind of like the elastic around your waistband. It adjusts with your shrinking, or probably more common for most of us, with our expanding waistline. And so with relative truth, what was truth back 100 years ago may not necessarily be accepted as truth today. It's relative. It changes with the culture. It changes with the times. The, the second phrase that, that you've heard is, is the phrase absolute truth. And absolute truth is truth that never changes. It's not adjustable. Absolute truth is right or wrong for all culture, for all generations, for all times. But what has happened in our country is that truth has ceased to be absolute. We prefer truth that is based on opinion rather than absolutes. That's why people, even church people, differ so much on, on so many things. And, and so when anything controversial or anything incendiary comes up in our country, we begin to make statements such as, well, this is what I think. This is my opinion. This is what I think. And, and we've been taught that every opinion has equal value. And so therefore, the foundation that we base truth upon now is just our personal opinion. I think. And personal opinions of Christians are fanning flames of racism and hatred and anger to new highs. And so I think it's time that we as Christians call a time out. It's time for us to do what James chapter 1 verse 19 says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. And then it says, slow to speak. And could I change this without doing harm to Scripture? Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to post, slow to become angry. And if we would listen more and post less, then we might actually have the wisdom to be, be able to do what Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says. Let your conversation, this is the way our conversation should be, not incendiary. Let your conversation be gracious and effective so that you will have the right answer for everyone. And I know that many times my perspective is jaded by my upbringing and and my perspective is jaded by living in the most conservative part of, of, of this country, but I've made a decision with God helping me that I will do my best to not be one of those super opinionated and, and informationally ignorant and immature people that, that takes an already emotionally charged issue and makes it more volatile. I want my conversation, as Colossians says, to be gracious and effective. And I want to be able to help the situation, not just express my opinion and say, well, this is what I think. Now, I want to give you some, some history that will lead us up to where we are today. And I, I know this isn't a history class, and I'll just warn you, some of this is heavy-duty stuff. So you're going to have to harness the reins of your ADD here, ADHD. And you need to listen because there's a progression here. We're going to end up someplace, at least I think I know where we're going. 
And uh, so I, I'm going to ask you, even though this gets kind of heavy, maybe a little bit boring, but I, I'm going to ask you to stay engaged on this. Our history lesson begins way before America was founded. And I've mentioned the terms relative truth and absolute truth, but for the first 1,200 years of existence of the church after the day of Pentecost, truth was pretty much defined by revelation. And, and two words would describe that revelation. God spoke. God spoke. God spoke through the Old Testament. God spoke through the New Testament. God spoke. And all that sounds fine and dandy, but, but the problem during this period of history is that most people didn't have access to the Scriptures. And in fact, with very few exceptions, the only people that had the Scriptures in those days were the clergy. And that's always a dangerous situation. If I were the only one to have a Bible here, there would be no checks and balances. I could preach my own agenda, twist things around, and since you wouldn't have a Bible, you would know the truth. Well, after about 500 years of the clergy being the only ones with scriptures, as you can imagine, horrible corruption came into the church, and, and the church began to teach things that were not biblical, and a lot of things were taught in the name of God that were contrary to scripture. Religion was used and abused by the church hierarchy. Well, in the 1200s to 1500s, a big break through took place and during what is called the Renaissance. And you've heard this period of time. Again, stay, stay connected here. The wor word Renaissance just means rebirth. And this Renaissance happened in two streams. First of all, it happened in the secular world. And it was during this time that people went back to the classics, to, to Greek literature, to Plato, to the arts. And, and soon, instead of man being this, this person that had no value as they had come to believe... That the Renaissance gave birth to the feeling that man did have value, and if given enough time and, and energy, mankind could make the world a wonderful place. That was the secular side. But, but, the, but the Renaissance also affected the spiritual realm, and, and there was a rebirth in knowing what the original Scripture said. And it was during this time that Martin Luther, people like Martin Luther, began to study the Bible for themselves in the original text of the Hebrew and, and the Greek. And they began to realize, hey, you know what? The church is saying this, but, but according to the book of Galatians, it's saying this. According to the book of Romans, it's saying this. They don't match. Well, the spiritual renaissance gave birth to the Reformation, which was a calling back to the truth, a placed emphasis on the authority of Scripture. And, and during the Reformation, you not only had Luther, but you had Zwingli, you had Calvin, and others who, who tried to bring the church back to what the Bible said and not just what the clergy said. And, Overlapping that period was the period of enlightenment in the 16 to 1700s. It was called the age of reason. And, and what came out of the age of reason is that man is basically good. And, and even though down through history, he's messed up yet with enough effort and, and with enough education, he can produce a utopia. In other words, a perfect world of peace. And that brought on the teaching. Stay connected. We're, we're about through this. Brought on the teaching of Immanuel Kant. And you had those who were called the rationalists, and they began to feel that man's reasoning was the authority. And did you catch that? Man's reasoning, thinking was the authority. Do you already see the slide? You know, the Reformation was a time of placing the authority on the Scriptures, but now the authority was being placed on man's reasoning. 
Well, also during the 17 and 1800s is when the Industrial Revolution got into full swing. The United States of America came into existence. And and there were more inventions in that period of time than had been invented in the previous 2,000 years. And, And these amazing inventions began to change the world. Prosperity occurred. Man became successful and self-sufficient. And he began to feel like he was invincible. Well, in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, Charles Darwin wrote a book. And by the way, did you know that Charles Darwin initially was a theology student? In 1859, he wrote a book called, you know what, Origin of the Species. And what's interesting is that initially no one bought into the book. They, they didn't pay much attention to it. But by the end of the 19th century, that book began to make its way to the forefront, and it brought about a new theory called evolution. Well, at the same time, the, the theory of of, of Relativity, relativity would be birthed by Albert Einstein. Einstein talked about a new way of looking at the world. And instead, and this is really important because we're getting closer, instead of just having one point of reference, he said you can look at reality through more than one reference points. More than one reference point. Sound familiar? Kind of like today, you know, you think this is okay. I think this is okay. It's all good. It's all good. It's just relative. And then Dewey came on the scene and he said, you know what the real issue, the real issue isn't what's right or wrong. The real issue is what works. If it works, it's good. And this would give birth to situational ethics. And and in the college classrooms, they began to give people these complex dilemmas. Okay, would you lie in order to protect your family? And people began to say, well, I guess our ethics can be determined by the situation. That led us into the 1960s. Some of you remember that. The 16th was a throwing, 60s was a throwing off of all moral constraint. And, and you had the hippie movement, smoking pot, saying, peace, brother, practicing free love. And that took us into the 70s, which became the age of experimentation. The people experimented with drugs and more sex. And the 80s became the me generation. It's about what works for me. And then in the 90s, we had the kids of the parents of the 60s who grew up without any sense of moral absolutes. And all of a sudden, they started reaping the consequences of no absolutes. And when you sow seeds of relative truth and, and man having more than one reference point, that will, it will eventually show up with a culture that is racist and cruel, and feeling like the end justifies the means. Or in other words, that the end results are so desirable that any method to achieve them is justified, whether or not it's moral, whether or not it's scriptural, whether or not it's ethical. The end justifies the means is what it leads to. All of that history, to say that we as Christians need to learn how to think again, And I'm sorry, but we probably need to get off our tablets and need to get off our phones and off our meaningless Google or or Siri searches and quit watching so much Oprah or Judge Judy or YouTube, whatever. And we need to get back to God's Word. And we need to fill our minds with things that have substance. We need to begin to teach our kids and our grandkids to understand the absolutes and understand how we got here and where we're going and what it's going to take to change the racism and the brutality and the end justifies the means attitude in the world. 
And it's so crazy. I mean, we use this word crazy. How many times have you said crazy the last week? You know, this whole pandemic, it's just crazy. It's just mad. It's just crazy. And, but it is crazy. And, and here the church across America is divided. One group says, well, George Floyd resisted arrest. And he was a, a frequent flyer with the law. So he had it coming to him. He deserved it. They forget that there was a life that was snuffed out that day. But then others say, well, this tragic death of George Floyd was so wrong in every aspect that it justifies the rioting and, and the looting. And they forget that another man's life, retired police officer David Dorn, his life was snuffed out as a result of the riot, rioting. And there have been others. Dave Patrick Underwood, Oakland, California, just a few days ago. Same thing, rioting, looting, shot and killed. And Satan laughs and celebrates as Christians go back and forth on social media, totally divided on issues that should unite us. We're living in a world that's lost its way. We're living in a world that doesn't know what's right, doesn't know what's wrong. We've lost our grip on absolute truth, and we've endorsed truth that adjusts to our opinions. And may I just kindly tell you that the responsibility of those of us that are followers of Jesus is not just to have a clever post on social media. Our responsibility is to gently remember our verse with love, point out that sin is the real problem, and Jesus Christ is the real answer. Did you hear me? Sin is the real problem, and Jesus is the real answer. And until we recognize that, our country will continue to spiral downward into deeper racism and brutality and cruelty and child abuse and domestic abuse. These are all products of sin. These are all products of leaving absolute truth behind. So how can we turn things around? It's not a quick fix. You know that. It took a while for us to get where we are get to where we are. It will take a process. But it begins in our hearts. You know, you can post all you want on social media. You can argue and debate. But remember, this is what I've learned. You might win the argument because you're clever, but you'll lose the person. So what have you gained? You've won the argument. You've lost the person. What have you gained? You rarely change hearts by clever debate. So could I just kindly ask you to limit your reactionary posts on social media? Also, I know the big thing today across the country is to march. And if you choose to march, march on. Marches and peaceful protests at time can help bring awareness to societal problems. There's a place and a time for that. But again, I have never seen a march bring about heart change. Awareness, yes. Heart change, no. And so the first step to change in America lies within your heart and my heart. Change begins when we repent of any attitudes that are not Christ-like. Christ loved the world. Christ loved the Samaritan half-breeds. He loved the lepers. He would have loved those who tested positive for COVID-19. So the first step is to repent of any attitude that is not Christ-like. Secondly, after repenting, then we need to begin to show that love to others. 
The test, here, here's the test. The test of how much you love people of other color or races is not how much you come out in support of George Floyd or David Dorn or others. Th- these were atrocities. But listen, if all you ever do, if all we ever do is speak out against the brutality and suffering of people in faraway places, but we don't give the time of day to show love and compassion to the meth addicts, the lonely, the maligned people in our own community, all we want to do is chime in on faraway injustices? I I think that shows our actions are pretty hypocritical. You know, we're really quick to come out against societal, injust- societal injustices in other countries, other places in our country, because, you know, we can kind of stand back and be safe. But we need to make an effort to show love to the underprivileged in our community, the underfed in our community, the underloved in our community. And until we do that, I question how right it is for us to even voice an opinion against injustices in other places because that smells a lot like hypocrisy. Thirdly, follow the absolute truth that Jesus gives us in his word. We need to deal with the sin issue in our own life. Jesus was the most tolerant person who ever lived. Would you agree with that? He was the kindest person who ever lived. But but listen... He was tolerant, he was kind, but he established some absolute standards for his followers. And when we begin to love as Christ loved, and we begin to deal with the sin issue in our own lives and follow absolute truth, here's what I believe needs to happen. I believe that one life at a time, slowly but surely, we can make progress against racism, brutality, abuse, evils that have plagued humanity since the very beginning of time. So, where do we go? What do we do? It begins in our hearts. And then it trickles down to where we invest our lives in loving people in this community that we would call that messed up, that we would call messed up, that we would call disgusting people that we ignore, we call them losers, we would not have the time of day for, begins in our heart. And then it flows into outward actions to these people. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the big picture. And I pray that today will be a turning point in our hearts. As the news as the emotional climate we're kind of in a frenzy right now but as all of that goes on I believe that the best thing we can do right now is to begin to change us when we change us that's the first step I believe one life at a time dealing with the sin issue don't forget the real problem don't forget the real solution the real problem is sin the real solution is Jesus Christ and this week as we uh, go about our day our week I pray that we would just ask God okay God 
where do I need to change? And is there any racism in my heart? If there's not racism, sometimes we have a prejudice against certain professions. Or we have prejudices against certain socioeconomic classes. We have prejudices against houses that maybe, you know, Eldorado Springs, you know, furniture in the front yard and refrigerators and all of that. We have a prejudice against them and we don't want anything to do with them. So I, I pray that God would begin to just search our hearts this morning if there should be anything that would cause us to just grieve the very heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, oh God, you know, uh, you know how to see us make some changes. God, it's unlikely that we as a small community can change St. Louis, but it's more than likely that we as a church can help change Eldorado Springs. And so, God, I ask that you would just cleanse, us our, cleanse our heart, make us holy. Lord, that there would be, Lord, that there would not be anything in, in our hearts that would be hypocrisy. Lord, as we uh, react to people, different posts, Lord, let us show the love of Christ. Lord, don't let us be part of the problem, but help us to be part of the solution. And God, would you give us an opportunity this week to maybe show some love to people in this community that normally we would have nothing to do with because of their lifestyle. So God, I pray that this week you would just do a work in our heart, do a work in our lives. And what you do for us, Lord, we will praise you, we will thank you as we become people wholly acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I know you wish you wouldn't have come today. I'm glad that you came without eggs. You've know, got a lot of chicken farmers here that have a bunch of eggs, and they're, they're giving away eggs, and I'm thankful that you didn't throw any eggs or tomatoes or anything like that today. Thank you for your kind attention. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.